of the next few partners, and Joshua Johnson, I'm here to make you laugh, challenge your mind, and help you build a foundation. This is the Dynasty Folk, presented by the Dynasty Football Wheel. Welcome to the Dynasty Pulse podcast. Uh, we had last week on vacation, but we are back, um, and I like to sing better than ever. Uh, during the during the kind of the downtime of the NFL season, we get to go and have two fun type of experiments and have some really interesting guests on. And today is no different as we have Dr. Charles Simko, Simkovich. I hope I pronounced his last name right. I'm sure he'll correct me. Uh, on today, Dr. Charles Simkovich of the Simkovich Cranial Institute joining us here uh, very shortly. Uh, but first, I've got to introduce my co-host. It's Nick Hale for the Redskins Wagner. Nick, what's up, buddy? How's your week off? Oh, it was great. Uh, always good to have a vacation, but glad to be back here getting back at it with you, Josh. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Glad to be back at it. And I uh, don't want to leave the great doctor waiting, as I'm sure he's got more important things to do. Uh, but uh, we will get, we'll patch him through. Uh, Dr. Charles, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you guys? Is doc- good, good. Is, is Dr. Charles okay? Or- yes, that's fine. That's easier. And how And how did I say your last name? Uh, perfectly fine, Simkovich. Good, Simkovich. All right, cool. I think I spelled that wrong in your initial, one of my initial emails back to uh, Stacy. And I, uh, I do want to thank your... Uh, I think you, she's just your, your representative, Stacey Costanzo, for helping uh, f- facilitate this interview. So a big thanks to her. Uh, and uh, but uh, Dr. Charles, why don't you just kind of get us started? But just letting the people know kind of wh- what you're about and, and what you guys do over there at the, the Cranial Institute. Well, our, our focus, uh, the practice is on concussions. Um, way back in, in uh, 1986, I was actually involved in uh, research that was being done in New York City on uh, uh, cranial bone movement and the effect it has on how your brain functions. And our initial focus was for learning disabilities and dyslexia. What we learned is that uh, what alters, the, the cranial bones have an intrinsic move, movement and motion, sort of like your heart beating. And uh, that in, in, uh, includes a, a lot of factors to that. But when this normal movement is altered, uh, the brain can't function the way it's supposed to. Um, and the primary cause of this is any blow to the head, so it doesn't even need to be a concussion. It can be the cumulative effects of smaller blows to the head, such as what you see a lot of times in, in offensive linemen, uh, people like Mike Webster, Junior Seau, uh, things like that. Um, so we identified what the movement was and, and how it affects the brain. Um, so essentially... Um, it's focused around the sphenoid bone, which is the bone that's right in the middle of the skull, and the brain sits on top of it. The bone is critical because it articulates or forms a joint with every other cranial bone. So um, the symptoms can be anything from pain symptoms to uh, learning problems such as eye tracking, um, short-term memory issues, um, uh, fine and gross motor skill problems, things like that, and uh, unless after a head injury that this normal movement is reestablished, the brain will never heal. It just can't, and that's why it's such a problem now in the NFL and with, with a lot of uh, 
uh, athletes as they get older. I, I have a lot of retired athletes. It's the same story over and over. They come into my office, shut the door, and they break down emotionally because they feel emasculated and like there's no help for them because they're not getting any better. I, I had a retired uh, Cleveland Brown who uh, would leave his house in the morning and couldn't find his way home. Uh, hmm. So it, it's a big problem, and uh, um, I, I don't think it's being uh, you know addressed properly. The, the, the traditional way of thinking about it is to let's let's have these guys rest and that the brain will heal on its own. I mean, no no other problem in medicine, no no other traumatic problem is is treated with rest. I mean, could you imagine if somebody breaks their arm and they still go home and, and rest? Uh, it needs to be set. So. Um, Anyway, that's that's a quick overview for you guys. I'm sure you have a lot of questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of the first question I had is, you know, I I know the the NFL and some other sports have have taken measures to try to to get more on top of this. You know, actually having a non-team affiliated concussion person. A concussion spotter, I think, is what they call him on, on the sidelines. Do you, do you have you like worked with any of those people, or what kind of training those people have, or do you know what kind of like degree or what they those type of people have? Because I'm sure it's probably not people like you. No, no offense to these people if if it is, but I'm I'm sure they're probably not of the level that that a, a doctor like of your specialty would be. Don't you think so? Well, yeah, they, it's easy to spot one, and, and frankly, they, it's overkill because what I've seen is they're being overcautious. Uh, they're they're uh, erring on the side of caution, and they'll remove people when they probably don't need removed, and they're not real sure. I, I know the referees were really upset when this first came out because a lot of it's placed on them. So they'll they'll take somebody out of the game if they're not sure, just so they don't have mm-hmm. a liability issue. Um, sure, it, you know it's it's. It's frustrating. You know, I've been doing this since 1986, and so I mean, I go way back with, you know, gosh, people, uh, old time football players. I mean, people like Elsie Greenwood from the Steel Curtain was a patient of mine. Um, and it, it's the same thing over and over. These guys are frustrated, and, and they said, "Listen, you know, uh, some people get mired in the way things have always been done. Unfortunately, you know, problems still exist because." Things were, have not been changed. You know, the definition of insanity is doing things the same way over and over and expecting a different result. And, it, and <laughs> you're never going to remove um, concussions from the sport or living. Uh, you know, I had in, in my office this morning. I was looking around. I had a hockey player, I had a soccer player. I had three auto accidents that caused concussions. Not one football player. Um, you know, it's not the season, but. Uh, you know, have all these other sports that cause concussions too. Here, here's here's the long and short of this: the the cranial bone movement, it, it, while it affects the brain and how it's functioning, it also does thing. It, it pumps a fluid that the the brain bathes in called cerebrospinal fluid. It pumps the fluid around the brain into the ventricles and all around the central nervous system. Now, the fluid, cerebrospinal fluid, has a has a role, many roles, but one of the big things that it does um, is it removes all the waste products that are produced in the central nervous system. So if you hit the head and the skulls, the, the cranial bones jam together, um, this, the efficiency of the pumping of the cerebrospinal fluid is decreased, so it's not flowing as readily as it should normally. So that the waste products remain in the central nervous system, and over time it starts to kill brain tissue. 
That's why you have people like Junior Seau and Mike Webster because the brain tissue was slowly dying and it never was rehabilitated. Uh, that's what's causing the CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So in order to heal the brain, the, the, the movement needs to be reestablished so the CSF or cerebrospinal fluid flow uh, normalizes, stabilizes, and then we've seen in our office uh, over and over again that, that the brain will heal. Uh, I had a patient uh, in 1976 that owned a tool and die shop, and uh, he had a disgruntled employee who hit him in the face with a pipe. And this guy had, he kept slowly deteriorating, and his wife brought him in two years ago, and the guy had no memory whatsoever. And uh, after uh, uh, working with me for a while, his memory came back, not 100% because it clearly was damaged, but um, the brain does have the ability to heal if it's placed in the right environment. I mean, look at the um, – uh, who's that receiver for the Bengals? Chris uh, – Chris, he, Chris Henry. He died Chris when Henry. he fell out of a pickup truck. Yeah, mm-hmm. Chris Henry. Uh, they did an autopsy on him. The guy had no reported concussions, but he, his brain was full of CTE. Now, what's that tell you? You know, he had a lot of hits on the head because he played football all his life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Nick, do you have any questions there? Um, yes, I was uh, reading about the cranial movement therapy that you offer at your institute, and I was wondering, is that used primarily to deal with long-term problems, or do players also use that to heal quicker to get back on the field? Uh, they, they they heal quicker. A lot of players use it prophylactically uh, and get regular checkups just to make sure that everything's working the way it should. Uh, there's a fellow named Dermani Dawson who's a Hall of Famer. Uh, during his entire career, he, he actually uh, was brought into my office when he was a rookie, and he told me his goal was to get 10 years in the league. And he, uh, he, he made weekly trips to me just to make sure that everything was okay and functioning the way it should because because you, you you can have blows to your head that you're not even aware of. So we, you know, determined what cranial faults he had and, and you would correct them. And, uh, you know, uh, so your, your question is a good one. Yeah. Typically, the sooner you get a hold of a problem, uh, if it's fresh, the quicker you can resolve the problem. Well, longer, older problems take longer to heal. I have a... Uh, uh, high school football coach in Ohio named Jose Davis. He was a uh, uh, a star quarterback for Kent State. He actually played uh, football and basketball for Kent State, and he was a quarterback for several years in the CFL. And he coaches high school now. And as soon as his uh, players get uh, he, they get dinged up in a game on Friday, it hit their first stop on Monday is in my office because uh, he's found that you see if he does that, um, they don't lose any time and they 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 play better and they don't have any injuries. Uh, and so he's, he's very proactive. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the players um, right away, they get, uh, I, I, I have a, a, a AAU hockey player who uh, his dad makes him come in weekly just to, just to make sure he's okay. Um, so, uh, since you kind of went there with the hockey, I was kind of wondering, um, is it harder to diagnose concussions in hockey i just just being a as as our listeners know i'm i'm a huge hockey fan as well as nfl but you know nfl there's you know three to seven seconds of violence for each play and then it's over and then obviously you know if somebody doesn't get up right away there's there's a definite concern hockey there can be three to five minutes where there's not a stop and granted you can change on the fly but 
sometimes I guess I just feel like maybe sometimes that can maybe go a little bit unnoticed. Obviously, and we know well from what you're saying so far, it doesn't take a huge, you know, game changing hit to cause concussion. Oh yeah, no, it doesn't have to be. <clears throat> Again, you can actually have a a, a a concussion without even hitting your head. Um, I used to write a, a column for a, a the Pittsburgh Legal Journal here in Pittsburgh, and uh, I wrote an article about concussion without a blow to the head. The a jarring tackle when your head is whipped can send the, the brain bouncing off the inside of the skull which can cause a concussion. So, um, yeah, the best way to find out is to, you know, have a specialist doing what I do, and they can diagnose it by, by looking for simple cranial faults. And uh, we're actually, you mentioned Stacy Costanza. She's actually in the process of starting uh, a residency program with doctors so that we, they, they're going to get trained in this because there's just not enough people doing this. Okay, and... Uh sent to you, you you've given us your your timeline I've, i i gotta ask and i know there's been different adjustments made over the years to the nfl helmet but do you remember the i i feel like it was maybe the first experiment with uh uh mark kelso of the buffalo bills he had like the extra cap over his helmet that was kind of velcroed on do you remember do you remember that at all or maybe sure if you don't could yeah. you talk about the, the kind of the evolution of the helmet throughout the year well, yeah, Kelso, uh, he did. He, he looked like a, a, a an alien with it on out there. And uh, he he actually uh, uh, went to high school here right down the street from my office at North Hills High School here in Pennsylvania. And, uh, it, you know, frankly, they're not going to design a helmet that's going to stop concussions. It's just it's impossible. Um, Mike Ditka is a friend of mine, and, and he and I have had multiple conversations about concussions and, and how. And he and I, I happen to agree with him. He said the only way you're going to stop concussions in football is to take their helmets completely off of them. Um, you know, people are using their heads as weapons in the sport now because they have a false sense of security from the concussions. Back in the days when there was leather helmets, you didn't see these kind of concussions because guys t- tackled properly with you know with their arms, and it was more like pulling people down like rugby. I mean, you, you don't have a concussion problem in rugby like you do in football because the guys, their heads aren't protected. And, and uh, while it might change the game so the fans aren't as thrilled about it because uh, uh, they like seeing the big hits, um, you know, it, it would make it safer for these guys. But you're still never going to get away with no con- – concussions are a part of life. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you're just not going get, to get rid of them get rid of them anyway so what the proper way to go about this is 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 by treating it properly so that um <clears throat> people can do things and live life uh without as much of a worry uh to have permanent damage okay um nick nick do you have any other questions there um, I was wondering do you have any idea how close we are to being able to test for cte in people who are still alive uh, no, I, I, I have no idea that would be, uh, but it, it is frustrating that um, you uh, you can't test for it. Um, on the other hand, uh, you you the is is that so important testing? I, I think a lot of the guys that come in here, I have um, I have a fella who uh, is a um, he owns a, a uh, investment firm, and his uh, clients are all high net worth individuals. 
and uh, he was on an airplane, and luggage fell out of the overhead bin and hit him in the head. And here this guy makes his living making money for his rich clients, and he couldn't read and couldn't think, and he said that this is his livelihood. His brain wasn't working. So he got referred in, and uh, he he was uh, at the very end, and he was much, much better. And he ran into Roberto Clemente Jr. in my office, and Roberto was talking about you know, pro sports and testing and, and diagnosing and all that. And this guy, he made a really good point. He said to Roberto, he said, listen, I don't really care if I'm tested. I don't care if I know if I have CTE or not. I don't care if I take the impact test or anything. He said, the testing just frustrates me because it just tells me what I already know, that I'm messed up. I want to get better. And so he was telling Roberto about that's why this was so important and because it was the only thing that made him better. And so we can assume that CTE is there because we understand somebody's not functioning. But, um, you know, since, since 86, we've been actually reversing uh, these symptoms from the concussion. So, um, yeah, is it important to diagnose CTE? Yeah. What would be the answer? Are they going to make those guys, once they find CTE, are they going to say, okay, you can't play sports anymore? Or do you want to find something that's going to, you know, help the problem go away? I mean, um, <clears throat> same thing like, you know, if somebody uh, needs a valve replacement in the heart, you know, they don't just say, well, okay, you just got to live that way and, you know, hope you don't die. They have, they have a procedure to correct it and they replace the valve. So that's that's the message I think we got to get out there is this, listen, this, this stuff is correctable and uh, we're, we're just now getting the word out. Um, when you talk about the testing, can, can you maybe walk us through just a little bit? You said like an impact testing. How 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 is that? How does that take place? Well, impact is is a, is a test. It's a, uh, a, a UPMC is University of Pittsburgh Medical Center here, and they came up with a test, and that's the test that, that they think it, they think is for concussions. Um, uh, it's uh, used by the NFL in a lot of high schools around the country. It's basically a, a repackaged neuropsych test. Um, I, I've, you know, it, it was the first uh, test that in existence. Um, you know, do I think it's really accurate? Uh, I've, seen, I've seen too many mistakes with it. Uh, I had a uh, boy played football here in, um, uh, in a place called Mars, PA, who <clears throat> he had a concussion and he failed the impact test, uh, but he never passed one because he has learning disabilities and the test didn't account for that. So even though he was clinically better after I treated him, he never could pass the impact test. So they held him out of football based on that test. On the other hand, one of those players that Jose Davis sent in to me is a scholar athlete and he uh, um, was able to pass the impact test post-concussion, even though clinically he really wasn't better, and I did not clear him to play because he still had too many cranial faults. Um, but he was smart enough to do well on the test. Peyton Manning, uh, about three or four years ago, maybe five years ago now on ESPN, made a statement that he tanks the impact test on purpose in the beginning of the season, so if he ever got a head, a head injury, he wouldn't have to come out. So, you know, that's a danger. Um, so, you know, there's inherent flaws in, in that. Um, you know the you know, the the best um, measure to determine if a player is able to play safely and if they're rehabbed and healed is to have physicians that understand cranial movement therapy and they, um, they the examination by the physician really is 
is the, should be the primary um, uh, point of entrance for these guys to see if they're safe and or make their corrections. Okay. Uh, Nick, did you have anything else for the doctor? Well, you mentioned as long as the football's around, there's going to be concussions. But are there any other changes that you would suggest the league implement to further protect the people that are putting their bodies and, as we now know, putting their minds on the line? I, I, I don't really think you can uh, make it foolproof and safe 100%. I, I, you know, the game, um, it, it, would, it would change too much. I mean, the only way you could make the game of football 100% safe percent safe for concussions is to basically um, not play the game. Um, <laughs> you, you can you can you can have a concussion by hitting the ground. Um, you know, in boxing, you know, you, you can't make that uh, you know concussion free. And you know, it's just the way it is. You know, we you know you can't stop living life. We we uh, you know we, you you live life and um, you know my son played football. I played football. You know, I loved football. Um, so, you know, the best, the best thing is to offer people solutions. Um, but yeah, concussions are here. They're a part of life, just like breaking bones are and colds and flus. And, you know, it's just how do you treat them? It should be the focus, I think. Oh, I got kind of a fun question. If you, if you're willing to humor me, I, I have had one diagnosed concussion in my, my lifetime and I'll, I'll say it was Dukes of Hazzard related. You remember how they got in? <laughs> In and out of the window and then open the doors. Yeah. So basically, sure. you could probably tell what happened. Tell me, I'm yeah. not the only one that suffered that same Dukes of Hazard fate, right? Um, right. I've had actually quite a few. I have people. You know what's real common <laughs> is uh, trunk trunks closing on people's heads or hatchbacks. <laughs> I have a lot of those. I, I actually have a I have a dentist who graduated from Pitt Dental School who um, talk about you know. Injuries related to cars. He he graduated with honors from Pitt Dental School. In the night of graduation, he was in a car accident. His head hit the door of his car so hard it separated it from the frame of the car. So this guy had such a bad concussion, he was um, he couldn't pass his national boards for two years after graduation. So the guy couldn't get he had a dental degree, couldn't practice because he couldn't get licensed. And uh, he was unloading trucks for UPS. And anyway, he got referred in, and, and six weeks later he passed. But there's a, there's a car, you know, he hit he hit the door of his car. So, yeah, you're just running in and out of your car too fast. <laughs> okay, right. it was a long time ago. I mean, the Dukes of Hazard hasn't been on TV for years. So, uh, but yeah. uh, I guess before we let you go, up, there's just maybe. I mean, obviously you you have a, you have a great type of treatment, and you have a a grave understanding that uh, is, is going to help people. Is, is there anything else that you just you just want to put out there before we let you go? Uh, no, I think we covered uh, uh, a whole lot here, guys. I, I appreciate you having me on. And, uh, you know, don't hesitate to call with any questions. All right, cool. We thank you very much. Uh, again, it's Dr. Charles Simkovich, the Simkovich Trainial Institute uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, PA. So uh, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, I said PA. We have, we have a guy from our website and from Pennsylvania. He always says PA. I don't say it as cool as you guys from PA, but I, I try. So thank <laughs> you, Dr. Charles. Hey, uh, have I, a good day, guys. Appreciate you, and we will see you in touch. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, sorry to embarrass myself with the uh, with the PA talk, but uh, it sounds so cool. If you know somebody from Pennsylvania, you know, you know what I'm talking about. They say it really cool. I used to know some hockey players in 
PA. But anyway, Nick, I'll, I'll start being serious. Uh, I think he really humored me. I'm sure I'm probably the only one. I'm not the only one with a doc. Di- Doc's Dukes of Hazard diagnosed concussion, right? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, there is reruns on that show, so maybe it could happen. Maybe it could happen again. But uh, we have a whole lot to get to today. Uh, so I wanted to get just maybe some talk about some news and notes here, Nick, before we get going. Obviously, we've been gone for a couple weeks, so there's some things I would like to touch on. Uh, a few signings: uh, Harrison Smith. Uh, I would say probably well deserved as well as uh, as well as Alan Hearns, considering uh, his rise from uh, from going undrafted, and then Keenan Allen definitely got a a raise there as well. Any any qualms or thoughts on those there? Um, no, I thought all those players definitely deserved those contracts. And with Harrison Smith, I know there was an article on DFW recently uh, about. Uh, player or actually it wasn't on DFW it was on a different site but players who are not the greatest players on the football field but are great IDP players Harrison Smith is actually one of those that is a great football player and great IDP play as well so nice to see him get rewarded for that absolutely um yeah he's he's well and he's an interesting IDP case too because he's He's a free safety that is among the top DBs in the league, IDP scoring-wise, and it's mostly those in-the-box guys. But Harrison has the ability to, to, you know, create in the back end and cover people, but he also has the ability to come down in the box and stuff the run, too, which when you really think about it, the fact that he's, he has, you know, he has a responsibility as a free safety to stay back, but he grades so well as a run stopper too is is pretty incredible. Um, I mean, the guy could probably play middle linebacker or weak side linebacker too in this league and be just fine. Um, I don't know what the exact stat is. I heard somewhere maybe just to the start of last season that Harrison Smith has like the most tackles of any safety in his first like four years of uh, of being in the NFL. So. Uh, certainly well deserved. Um, the, the Alan Hearns rise. We'll talk about uh, Hearns a little bit later as we put Alan Hearns versus Sterling Shepard in our uh, dynasty dilemma this week. Uh, interesting Twitter vote on that one, by the way. Really, really close. Um, probably one of the closest we have. But uh, his his rise from going on draft is pretty pretty incredible. Um, you know, especially rising through guys that have been drafted by that team. It's certainly a, a solid number two there. Uh, Keenan Allen looks to a lot of people thinking that he looks to become, you know, of the elite status. And I certainly think so. Uh, what about, uh, the, uh, Fletcher Cox mega deal, Nick, uh, the overwhelming, I guess I shouldn't say, I saw a Twitter poll that had a lot of people from a, from a Pittsburgh, from, excuse me, from a Philly radio station that had a lot of people voting that they were, they were okay with it. I just, gosh, it, it is a lot of money. And, uh, but I, I do have a lot of respect. I think he's definitely one of the better interior defensive linemen in the league, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. And I, I think it is always a, a safer money spent on your own players rather than signing, say, an Adamican uh, Sue from another team, hoping that he's going to fit into your system. Whereas in Philly, they already know what they have in Fletcher Cox. And, you know, they've seen him on the practice field, in meetings, et cetera. So they, they know what they have with him. They felt comfortable giving him that money. So I have absolutely no problem with that. Absolutely great there. I mean, you, you you know what he does day to day. You know how he comes to the office. You know the work he puts in. And uh yeah, they 
that that defense is potentially be very very solid with him and Ben Logan just pushing things right up the middle of that line. Uh, obviously, you know, going back to the to the four three, so we'll have to see a little bit of more of a transition from Connor Barwin, Vinny Curry, Brandon Graham, and company. But uh, they're they're getting some great help inside with those two awesome defensive tackles. Uh, so the Brashard Perryman saga, Nick, is basically stuck in a purgatorial preface. He could potentially be out. Now, I just saw a report before we started that he could be back in camp, but now, but we also know he could potentially miss the entire season. Uh, any thoughts there? I mean, it just seems like such a shame. We, there's so much speed, so much potential there. We just can't can't seem to get up past it, right? Yeah, but you know the latest news says that he's probably going to be okay for the season. So that's that's great to hear. You know, always always it's always sad when a young player with so much potential, like you mentioned, Perryman being a first round draft pick, he's very talented physically. So you know, it's sad when players have deal with injury after injury, like he seems to have. But but hopefully hopefully the latest news is the correct news, and he's going to be good to go for the season. And and hopefully with I I think. Maybe you know, obviously, it's not amazing. Wow, fantasy number, number wise, depth. But I think this team does have depth. Um, so I think, hopefully, they don't they don't rush him back because they obviously want him to be a big part of their future former first round pick. So, uh, well, we we saw like thirty two straight games, Nick, of Darren McFadden being healthy. But then, of course, he broke his elbow at home. Um, I think he dropped his phone and tried to catch it. Is the story? I was hoping like he was playing with a kid. I mean, that's almost feasible if you're you know messing around with, with a little one. But seriously, come on, run DMC. Is he? Is he? He's done in Dallas, there, Nick. I mean, I don't know. Only two months. You know, that that would that, that timetable puts him on track to return for the regular season. But it is kind of sad when uh. You know, he sold out more to try to save his cell phone than Cam Newton sold out for the football in the Super Bowl. So, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know the exact story, so don't quote us on that. But uh, something something to, to that effect. But, uh, yeah, I just, you know, being a Raiders fan and being kind of around, around him throughout, not around him personally, but just, you know, knowing – what he's gone through in his career. You wonder when a guy repeatedly gets injured, and obviously this is a different case, when repeatedly gets injured, you just wonder about what type of attitude they have off the field, how they approach, you know, the game when they're not playing or when they're not in season. And I just, I feel like when injuries continue to happen, there's got to be a training issue or something. I mean, nobody's that unlucky every single year. So I wonder what kind of shape, you know, of, a 30-year-old back's going to be in by the time he's ready to run. And obviously it's not going to affect his legs. He can still run. But uh, I just the, – the timing and whatnot, I just – I would – if you own McFadden, don't – I'm sure you're not holding out much hope, especially after <laughs> Ezekiel he was drafted there. But, uh, yeah, I just – oh, frustrating. And one more thing I wanted to get to. Nick. Joey Bosa doesn't report to camp because of a contract dispute. Really? I mean, is he – basically he's either – pissed because they're not maybe you know they're not offering him as much money as Ohio State did oh wait did I say that out loud um uh, <laughs> or you know but now he's gonna get fined because he's not at these mandatory mini camps 
so now he's going to need the extra money, right? I just the guy hasn't played it down. You know, there was so many. There was you know this huge split. People love him. He's going to be a star. You know, he's Lawrence Taylor. Blah blah blah. Maybe nobody said that, but people love him. And everybody's like, no, this guy's a total bust. Got drafted way higher than people expected. Not way higher, but higher than people expected. Hasn't played it down, and now he's holding out for some contracting. Seriously, you're about to get paid legitly uh, for the first time re- realistically in your life, and really, you're holding out. I just don't get it. What are your thoughts? Well, first off, I don't. I don't think they can fine him for not showing up for mandatory mini camps if he's not signed a contract. I'm pretty sure oh. that 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 that's not a thing. But uh, I don't know. I I kind of understand. I don't know enough about the subtleties of this particular contract negotiation to take a side one way or the other, but I mean, you know, if he's been playing by the rules, he has been playing for free at Ohio state. So I, <laughs> I, I do understand it. It is hopefully his first actual payday. So I do kind of understand why a player would after putting his body on the line for free, why he would want to actually make sure he got the right contract once he is actually getting paid over the table anyway. Yeah, but I mean, even still, whatever is on the table, I think there's he's one of five un, currently unsigned players right now for the first round. Even what has been presented to him has got to be more money than he's ever seen in his life, unless his you know unless his family's part of the Rockefeller dynasty or whatever. I mean, I know his father played in the NFL, but that was many years ago, so so it's not like they're 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 well off. But anyway. We're getting into some weird territory there, and I don't want to insult anybody or get into trouble. So just go sign your contract, Joey. Get over yourself. But anyway, we got let's get to some dynasty trade analysis. Uh, some other things we got on tap for you today. Um, I'm going to do best number 38, the dilemma. Sterling Shepard versus Alan Hearns. That ought to be very good. Uh, we're going to grade each other's DFW 48 teams. And, of course, Nick is going to rant. Oh, and by the way, next week – I. I still can't believe this is going to happen. And maybe, maybe I'll believe it's after he have set on. But next week we have the Zen master of college football, Phil Steele coming on. I, I am almost emotional when I say that. So I am super excited for that. So you, you can't, you can't uh, miss that. He's going to tell us who to watch this year coming up in the college football season. So you Debbie report guys, are you guys that want to get the edge next year already? You, you need to listen to that. That's super, super exciting news. It's Phil Steele, people. I mean, if you and if you don't know who he is, I'm sorry, but it's, it's, this is that's huge. I mean, I'm so super excited to have him on. Uh, the following week, we have Jed Grenning from the University of West Virginia. He's going to talk about, namely, Carl Joseph and KJ Dillon, but kind of how these these hybrid safety players from these different types of college defenses are going to translate into the NFL. Um, and not. Totally confirmed yet, but I think I have Chris Hickson coming on the following week after that, who is a uh, professional quarterback trainer. So that should be uh, very interesting as we try to keep things interesting here during the, the, the actual downtime of the NFL season. Uh, but let's get to some dynasty trade analysis. Had some pretty good ones for you. Um, but uh, let's, let's, let's. Time for dynasty trade analysis. Okay, Nick. Um, pulled a few of these from Twitter. Kind of a big one here uh, right away. Jeremy Hill, John Brown, Leonte Crew, and Michael Thomas for 
Antonio Brown and Frank Gore. What are your thoughts there? Um, well, I think the person that traded for Antonio Brown and Frank Gore is in a win-now mode, and if that's the case, then definitely I love this trade for that side. Uh, I mean, Jeremy Hill, he's kind of a running back number two. Uh, John Brown, he's definitely not a wide receiver one at this point in his career. He may end up being mad at some point. Uh, same with Michael Thomas, but, you know, being able to get one of the top two, top three wide receivers, if not the number one wide receiver in the league for at least the next year or two in Antonio Brown. Plus, Frank Gore is probably going to be a pretty solid running back at least for this year Uh, I wouldn't count on him past this year but you know for 2016 yeah if you're loading up for a title run I love giving up those guys for Antonio Brown and Frank Gore yeah and you know it's hard to give up three young wide receivers but Carew and Thomas are rookies you know we don't know exactly what they're going to give um but if you are going to give up three and get a guy, you're getting a guy like Antonio Brown for sure, and that's okay. He is, he is, you know, a little up there in age, but like Nick said, definitely probably a win now mode. Um, you know, Frank Gore and Jeremy Hill could have very similar years, maybe similar the next two years. But uh, and, and that being said, they could be good or they could be bad. You know, we we've seen uh, running backs rise and then just completely disappear. I'm not saying that's going to happen to Jeremy Hill. But I did warn people last offseason. I want to say pound my chest a little bit. I warned people last offseason. You know, what if Jeremy Hill isn't awesome again? And we we saw what happened. I suffered through him on a a, a keeper league where he was my only keeper last year. Um, and uh, some dynasty owners very smartly moved him for some for some high picks this year. So, um, did this trade at all remind you of the uh, the Burgundy trade from last year, Nick? I think. He gave, I think he did. He give up. He gave up a whole bunch of players like this for maybe Sammy Watkins or I think he got Antonio Brown too. Maybe maybe he got. I don't know if he got both from the same deal. Do you, do you remember that deal at all though? I mean, he was. We were like, oh my gosh, how can he give up all these players? But again, it's you know one of those things where these two get two of these guys are rookies and we just we just don't know. So I mean, some people see that, and I think especially the people on uh, draft Twitter maybe overreact because they love rookies and they love rookie picks, but you know, you're getting an established player. So that, that, that is one thing you always have to keep in, keep in mind. And like you said, win now mode, right? Nick? Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I don't remember that, uh, that exact trade off the top of my head, but another thing to factor into the equation is, you know, we're coming up on uh roster cut down dates here in the next couple months. So, you know, if you have a lot of tough roster yeah. decisions to make, you know, if you trade away four players, that's, you know, makes your makes your decision making a lot easier. Very good point there. And speaking of uh, last year, I, I don't know. I just happened to come across a, a podcast notes that I sent to you last, probably last year, maybe last April. I don't know what I'm doing now differently, but it, I feel like we totally streamlined things. There was like 20 bullet points in that note, which I'm just like, oh my God, did we talk about all this? Was this a three-hour show? What have you? I guess you've probably noticed that, have things down, and maybe I don't need to be so precise, but I was just like, holy cow, there was so many bullet points. I think today there's like, you know, like five or six or something like that. It's just like, oh my gosh, that was insane. So, um. We've we've come more streamlined in our uh, in our process. Anyway, what we're talking about trade dynasty trade analysis. Uh, another big one here. A lot of moving parts. Um, 2017 first, 
2017 third, 2018 first, 2018 second for Randall Cobb, Alan Hearns, Alfred Morris, Charkandrick West, and Ryan Fitzpatrick. Seems like a lot of high picks to give up for those players, don't you think? Yeah, and to me, this one screams a lot of back-and-forth negotiations with all those uh, moving pieces in there. Um, you know, if it was Randall Cobb and Alan Hearns for the two firsts, I, I would think that would be a completely fair trade. Uh, but, you know, giving up an additional second and a third for guys like Alfred Morris, who is he, he's probably seen the best of what Alfred Morris has had to offer. Uh, sure, Kendrick West maybe could, have, you know, emerge from that three-headed monster backfield there in Kansas City, but we don't know for sure. And then Ryan Fitzpatrick doesn't even have a job at this point. So you, you, I, I would have to side with the team that picked up all the draft picks. But, you know, I, I, I don't hate the trade, though, because, you know, you did get two great receivers and not great, but two pretty solid receivers in Randall Cobb and Allen Hearns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, too, if I'm going to give up a first, I either want two firsts in return, like if I give up a future first for two firsts, you know, in the upcoming draft, or I, if I, I want a marquee player. And I, just, I, I, I think Cobb's definitely worth, you know, Cobb and, like you said, Hearns are definitely worth a first. And I think Tark Kendrick West is going to be okay. I think PPR-wise, he's going to be a very nice contributor. He's not Danny Woodhead, but I think you'll, you know, he could be the Danny Woodhead light or junior, if you will. But, uh, yeah, Alfred Morris and Ryan Fitzpatrick, obviously, just just throw-ons in this thing. Um, how do you feel, just uh, just in general, and great point, by the way, about the a lot of back-to-back in, in this trade, but how do you feel about rolling 2018s already? I mean, doesn't that seem a little, a little far-fetched? I think we have one of our leagues that we are in together. You can trade those, those further on picks. I think I traded in 2018-7 during our draft this year, but uh, – for Cody Kessler, but uh, what are, what are your thoughts? What are, trading those 2018s already? Yeah, especially trading a 2018 first round pick and second round pick, the picks that early. I would have to be extremely confident in my team's ability to win now this season to, in order to trade those future uh, first and second round picks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and cautionary tale. I know going it was not this year, so it would have been 2015 rookie draft season. Uh, I remember Burgundy and DFW 36 had a ended up having the first overall pick, and he said, "Yeah, I traded." You know, right when he got hot, I traded um, Brandon. It was basically Brandon Oliver for that. Ended up being the first overall pick. So I mean, things can change uh, uh, very quickly, especially with running back. But obviously, that was a mistake for that, by that player that traded that thing away. But uh, you know, you're running, your players can get hurt or they, they lose their job and your team obviously could tank. But just, just a cautionary tale there. So this one is from DFW36. Um, I, I really can't pick a side. I, I mean, I, I guess I, I do have a preference on this one, but I, 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 got, I feel like it's a pretty solid trade. Dante Moncrief in a 2017 fourth for Devon. Devontae Parker in a 2017 seventh. What are your thoughts then, Nick? Um, I personally would prefer Moncrief over Parker, even without the draft picks. Um, I just think 
playing in Indianapolis with a quarterback like Andrew Luck, who we know is going to be a solid quarterback for the next 10 years or so, I, I would just prefer Moncrief to Devontae Parker. Parker probably has more athletic upside. I'll definitely give him that, but the situation just isn't there. And we have, you know, we haven't seen either of these guys really prove it for, you know, as far as being a wide receiver one. But I think Moncrief has a more of an opportunity to rise to the role of a wide receiver one than Parker does. Yeah, and, you know, the the thing that I think everybody gets really intrigued by, Parker, is Adam Gaze is there now in town. But I, I really feel like Adam Gaze, his type of offense functions better with two wide receivers contributing at a high level, and I think that's going to limit him. Um, if this was a solely a touchdown league, I think Parker could potentially have a nice high touchdown potential. But when you get in a guy like Moncrief in this this PPR world that we currently live in, I think he's you know I'd be I'd be surprised if he doesn't either get a hundred catches or at least a hundred and you know like sixty hundred seventy targets this year. I think he just has that type of potential. We we know what T.Y. Hilton is. He's um we talked about Mon I'll talk about Moncrief, excuse me, and uh we talked about actually all the Indianapolis Colts wide receivers in the Q and A on Saturday, but we know what Hilton is. He's never had more than eighty two receptions in a season. He's he's a guy that's gonna trim the top off the defense. Philip Dorsett is basically that type of player. It's somewhat of a little bit smaller package. Moncrief has that opportunity to be the modern day Marvin Harrison. He can he's the guy that I'm not saying he can get hundred and forty three receptions or whatever ridiculous record that is, but I just think he's got that, that type of ability. I think Parker is a very good player, but he's not a do it all Calvin Johnson guy that's gonna, you know, go across the middle. You can depend on for, you know, eight to twelve targets. I just don't think he's that player. I think he's a guy that's going to use his height in the red zone and he's going to stretch stretch the field vertically. I know that's a little bit different from the different molds of the speedy guys like a Dorsett and T. Y. Hilton, but I just I feel like he's he's that type of player. He's a guy that's gonna use his his, his leaping ability, his long arms. He's gonna be a menace in the red zone and score a lot of touchdowns. But I think consistent production is gonna come from Moncrief from there. So I, I, I would shade a little bit towards that side, but I I think both of these guys are going to be very, very good players. I just think there's a little bit of a limitation there when you're talking about that with Parker, not necessarily with Moncrief, because he, as I'll, as I'll point out in the Q&A, he checks all the boxes. Sorry for the scouting metaphor. I can't can't get out of it. I'm writing all these 2017 dev reports. Um, but, uh, yeah, fairly, fairly decent trade there. Uh, this one is really simple, and it just came from the startup that I was in this year. Um, and I guess I, I threw it in there, Nick, because I just I found it interesting, and because obviously there was a, a difference in draft position, but it's, it's Ezekiel Elliott for Todd Gurley. What, what are your thoughts there, Nick? And I'll tell you the draft position here when you're done. Uh, well, nine times out of ten, I'm going to go with the proven player who's uh, you know showed it on an NFL field the way that Todd Gurley did last year. But in this case, I'm actually going to go the other way and take Ezekiel Elliott just because of the situation. I uh, got a better offensive line, a uh, better quarterback situation, better passing game in general. Des Bryant on the outside to take attention away from him, whereas teams can load the box against the LA Rams now and Todd Gurley because they just don't really have that wide receiver and quarterback threat. Maybe Jared Goff evolves to be a good quarterback, but we haven't 
we don't know for sure yet, whereas we know that Tony Romo is going to provide a threat as far as the passing game is concerned. So I, I in this situation, I would definitely go with Ezekiel Elliott. Okay. Um, the uh, first, and they were the first and second running backs off the board. Gurley was 1.04, and Ezekiel Elliott was 2.02, one pick ahead of uh, Le'Veon Bell and eight picks ahead of David Johnson. So, I mean, if that's a player that drafted Gurley 1.04, I mean, why don't you just take Elliott in the first place if that's what you wanted? I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not like it's not like it started a run on running backs when you took Gurley that high. But I, I, I don't know. I just uh, and I see what you're saying about the proven player, but you get the you get that offense too. Um, an interesting thought, Nick, and maybe maybe we can talk more about this when we forget we brought it up. But uh, a few months from now, um, what if we flipped the teams? with Todd Gurley and Melvin Gordon last year. I mean, not, I'm not trying to give the Melvin Gordon owners, you know, any type of love, but both these teams did not have very good offensive lines. Granted, San Diego's was, I mean, very, very bad. And at least St. Louis had some, you know, younger pieces that were learning. They're clearly better than, um, than the Chargers, and I say St. Louis because that's what they were last year. But what if we flip those teams around? Did I did I BS enough for you to come up with a thought there? Um, I, I don't really understand what you're going for, but uh, I, I will say that you know last year I was definitely 100% wrong when I thought that uh, I would draft Melvin Gordon ahead of Todd Gurley because of the injury concerns. <laughs> One yeah. of the biggest bonehead statements that I've made. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's it's good to admit when we're wrong, and I think we I was I was kind of in that same boat, and I think we've kind of learned from our mistakes. And you know, they didn't fire us from doing the podcast here, so I think we're okay there. <laughs> um, but I just wonder because they both had not good offensive lines, and I'm not and I'm not I'm that's just the eye test me. I'm not saying they graded you know on PFF you know 28 and 29 or whatever. I'm just saying they were not very good. They're not Dallas, but I just wonder. But what the talent level of Todd Gurley would have been able to do with, let's say, a not you know not as good offensive line as I mean, St. Louis isn't terrible. San Diego was terrible, but it, it would be interesting to see what what they would have done if they if those two teams would have switched. So maybe maybe we can revisit that and get get more in depth. But uh, after Melvin Gordon scores a touchdown, what do you think? Have Have you heard anything about the Melvin Gordon? I mean, have, have you been able to? Been able to? Do you own him in any leagues, Nick? I, I do not. Thank goodness, I did not have a top two pick in the last year's draft in any of my leagues, so I do not own Melvin Gordon. Woohoo! Okay. Well, yeah, I don't own him either. I do own him. Excuse me, but um, in one league, DFW thirty six traded Martavius Bryant and Jalen Strong for them, so not looking too bad. As both of those guys are clearly potheads, but um. <laughs> The, you know, the microfracture surgery was, I believe, still in January, and he's been seen already at camp. Um, I heard a San Diego guy on a different podcast last week talking about he's running at camp, but he is still, you know, a little bit ginger in favor in favoring some things there. So I, I, I don't know. I feel like people are making a little bit of a big deal out of this. Maybe bigger than they have to. I mean, let's let's see where we're at mid-August before people start panicking and 
and whatnot on that because I think I think it'll be I think it'll be okay. I just just uh, I guess maybe and that could just be the owner in me, but we'll see. Um, best number thirty eight. Now this is not to be worn in the NFL. <laughs> we me and Nick have clearly found that out so far. Uh, but uh, we, we'd like to maybe educate you. And it's one thing I always like, too, is when even when it's a fairly decent number to talk about, Nick, sometimes I find these players that I had no idea about, and it's fun to kind of learn up about them. Like uh, Roland James is one guy that I didn't know anything about, played for uh, the New England Patriots from 1980 to 1990, 29 career interceptions, fairly, fairly decent number uh, of receptions, you know, certainly, certainly uh, – uh, noteworthy, I would say. So, what what do you got for us, Nick? Uh, best number thirty-eight. Well, if I were any kind of true historian, then one of the two Hall of Famers who wore number thirty-eight would be at the top of the list. But alas, I am not, and I didn't even know the names Robert Hubbard, the offensive lineman and defensive lineman for the Giants and Packers in the nineteen twenties and thirties, who was a, a named All NFL every year from nineteen twenty-eight to nineteen thirty-three, or the name Arnie Hubbard, uh, Arnie. Herbert, who uh, led the NFL in passing in 1932, 1934, and 36. Uh, it was a different game back then. You know, after 13 years, he retired with 8,000 yards passing and 81 touchdowns. You know, these days, mediocre quarterbacks surpass that in three years, but that was enough to get uh, Arnie into the Hall of Fame. Now, when I texted you about how weak this number was, the names you responded with were Mark Kelso, who played safety with the Bills during their Super Bowl run in the 90s, uh, Max Strong, the Seattle fullback from 1994 through 2007, and Eugene Daniel, who was a very durable cornerback for the Colts for 13 of his 14 seasons. But you know what? There was only two Pro Bowl invites among those three players, and both of those were Max Strong. I mean, heck, Deshaun Goldston's two Pro Bowls in his nine seasons, uh, both when he was in San Francisco, is as many as those three guys had combined. Um, the running back, George Rogers, was the number one overall pick in 1981 by the New Orleans Saints, and he paid immediate dividends. He led the NFL in rushing as a rookie with 1,674 yards en route to the first of his two Pro Bowls. He ended up with only four 1,000-yard seasons in his seven-year career, but he did score 18 touchdowns in 1986, and he won a Super Bowl with Washington in 1987. Uh, so that brings us to my top number 38 of the modern era. I would have to say it would be the three-time Pro Bowl fullback Kimball Anders of the Kansas City Chiefs from 1991 to 2000. Uh, he had five straight seasons with 55 or more catches, and at 5'11", 225, was not simply a bulldozer for the halfback, but also an offensive weapon while also opening holes for everyone from Marcus Allen and Greg Hill to Donnell Bennett and even Bam Morris for a couple of seasons. You know, like I said, this is, like we both said, this is not the strongest number, of course, but I will say a lot of these number 38s deserve to go to more Pro Bowls than they did. So maybe it's one of the most underrated numbers of all time, right? Uh, sure. Um, one guy I kind of came across that I found interesting was M- Mike Anderson, the running back for uh, Denver. That certainly is modern era. Actually, had two thousand yard seasons. Um, interestingly enough, he was a twenty seven year old rookie when he had fourteen hundred eighty seven yards and fifteen touchdowns for a, a stout Denver offense. And then he went three years between having another thousand yard season. So at ages twenty seven and thirty two, he had thousand yard seasons. Uh, uh, that was, I found that really interesting. Uh, Kelso, uh, we talked about earlier with the breakaway helmet. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google search Mark Kelso helmet. and it, It's it's awesome. It's like this big piece of Velcro that's st- stuck to the top of his helmet. 
And I told Nick. Well, was, was, was it Mark Kelso or Steve Tasker? I'm sorry, was it Mark Kelso or it Steve was, Tasker that had the hel- uh, helmet? It was Kelso. I, and maybe Tasker had it too. Maybe they both had it. Uh, maybe that's okay. a, a Buffalo thing. But uh, there's some other there's some other players that wore it throughout the years too. But uh, yeah, I just remember seeing what, maybe it was one of the experimental periods with that. The first game, he tackled somebody, and the thing popped off, and there was a weird, odd hush throughout the crowd because nobody necessarily knew what had happened. But uh, uh, I guess that's his place in history. But uh, that's uh, – I, I, I always appreciated He was a little smaller guy, a little the – white, the white safety around there, uh, uh, rack, racking heads. So I, I love that. Um, sorry for the bad metaphor, heads. But um, Modern, I shouldn't say modern days. Currently, I think Adrian Amos could potentially become a very good player for uh, the Bears. There, the Penn safety out of Penn State, Eugene Daniel, another another great name. And you mentioned Deshaun Golston, Nick too. He also wore number thirty-eight. So, so there you go, two-time Pro Bowler there. So, uh, it's always interesting to find out and learn about players that you didn't necessarily know are new. I uh, knew they were that wore that number, but it's fun to it's fun to dig deep into some of these players. Like like I said earlier, Roland James had no had no idea who that even was until we got to that this point. The best number thirty eight, uh, good uh, good number, not not bad, but good number. Just a just a little bit of a a different one, we'll say. Um, let's get to some. It's Dynasty Dilemma time, so I need a I need a breath. So we'll play the line clip. Okay, so we're pitting Alan Hearns versus Sterling Shepard. Nick had the opportunity to choose this week. Um, so uh, what do you got for us, Nick? Well, first off, I need to admit, I really do like Sterling Shepard, even though I chose Alan Hearns. But I, I would probably have Shepard ranked as my number four rookie wide receiver, but he is just far from a sure thing. Remember, about half of rookies end up not panning out. We've seen plenty of wide receivers drafted earlier than Shepard wind up doing next to nothing at the pro level. Plus, Shepard's quarterback is a 35-year-old Eli Manning, who, coming off back-to-back six and ten seasons, may decide to retire sooner than later if he doesn't feel like the team gives him a chance to win. And even if he does play until he's 40, he is currently five years removed from his career high in passing yards. Plus, Eli's wide receiver twos over the years really haven't put up consistent numbers. Uh, Hakeem Nix and Reuben Randall flashed at times, but the consistency from week to week and year to year has really been lacking there for New York Giants wide, receivers, uh, wide receiver twos. Uh, yes, Shepard does have a high ceiling, but as with all players who have yet to set foot on an NFL foot field, his floor is zero. I mean, for all we know, his career could mirror Jonathan Baldwin, a wide receiver who was taken with the 26th overall pick by Kansas City in 2011, uh, who ended up doing nothing in the NFL. But, you know, Alan Hearns, he gives us none of the aforementioned worries. He has a young, up-and-coming quarterback in Blake Bortles. He has already proven himself on the field, going from 51 catches, 670 yards, and six scores as a rookie, to 64 catches and over 1,000 yards and 10 touchdowns in year two last year, uh, earning himself a nice four-year, $40 million contract along the way. 
Uh, Hearns also plays with a chip on his shoulder, always like he has something to prove, which is common among late-round picks and undrafted players. Remember, Alan Hearns had to beat out a second-round pick, Marquise Lee, to even earn a starting job. While it appears that Shepard has already been handed a starting role, you know, sometimes that can that can lead to complacency. You, again, I, I, I'm being too hard on Shepard. I really do like him, but I just prefer the far safer Alan Hearns. What do you think, Josh? Well... Um, this is the point where I remind everybody what our one is going to be next week, but I'll, I'll finish. I'll, I guess I'll find that here one second. Uh, so this, I think this is kind of a classic case of second fiddle slash Rob guys being second fiddle slash Robins on their own team. That makes OG OBJ and Allen Robinson, Batman. I think, I think you kind of dig what I'm saying. You following? Uh, so certainly I'm up against the wall here as a defender rookie versus a blue collar riser like Kearns. Despite the fact he's a former Miami Hurricane, I have a lot of respect for Hearns and all that he's been able to accomplish thus far. Uh, but now let's address the real dog in the fight. I will, will admit, when I saw the Giants drafted Sterling Shepard, I was a little confused. Both he and Odell are under six foot, and if Victor Cruz ever comes back to life, suddenly the Giants' wide receivers are midgets? Wait, that can't be right. But wait, metrics and major roles matter more, right? So in addition to being flanked by one of the one of Dynasty's top weapons in OBJ, Shepard, who stands just 5'10", defies all sizes logic with a 41-inch vertical. Oh, and by the way, the big-handed Beckham has 38-inch 30, vertical. Both check the speed boxes with 4'4", So why am I comparing these two players when I'm supposed to be comparing Shepard to Hearns? It's basically because I believe Shepard believe in Shepard immensely, even to the point to where I believe he can approach OBJ's level. Shepard may be a simple slot wide receiver early on, and no offense to Jeremy Davis and Dwayne Allen, but it take but it won't take long for Shepard to rise up through the through the Giants ranks as a legitimate wide receiver too. I love Victor's also Cruz, but his height his heightened age give and given his crestfallen injury history is it makes him, I think, at best, like a 40% snap count guy. And no, all indications are that he looks really great, but everybody looks really great right now in OTA. So that's that's the overwhelming thing. Everybody's always in the best shape of his life. We we will see. I just you can't hold a lot of hope if you're an owner of Victor Cruz. Just just know that Shepard and Odell should grow to a forceful duel in a in a nightmare for opposing defensive coordinators. Hearns has the ability to stretch the heck out of the field, but his career high in receptions is just 64. And he does have peers like Rashad Green and, you know, Marquise Lee is still a Jaguar. So let's not, let's not forget about that. So he's got some, he's got some other young wide receivers to compete with. Julius Thomas at this point is actually a full goal. And the signing of Chris Ivory means TJ Yeldon will also see more third down targets. So, I believe Hearns, though he was just given a juicy contract, will struggle to record 60 receptions annually. Meanwhile, I see Shepard ripping down 70 to 80 as a rookie and possibly 85 to 100 annually. That opportunity and targets will simply be greater for Shepard, and that's why I believe in Shepard over Hearns. Rebuttal? Well, I, I 
think that the $40 million contract means that Marquise Lee is not a thing. He is not in Jacksonville's future plans, <laughs> even if he is still on the roster. I mean, come on. And, you know, I, I do agree with you, though, on the point about Victor Cruz. Uh, he's not somebody that you, you or the Giants should be relying upon. So, uh, yeah, Shepard is, is going to be the wide receiver, too, there in New York. But I, I just prefer the guy who's already proven it on the field. Yeah, and there and there's nothing wrong with that, and I think that's a good lesson to uh, to everybody out there. Don't get so uh, don't get so rookie crazy every single year. I think I I I've tried not to, but then again, I you've already graded some of my drafts as we segue into the next point here, where I've had like 13 picks or 12 or 13 picks. So um, anyway, Nick, what do you look at? Let's take a look at our DFW 48. Drafts. Uh, DFW, 48 teams, four copies each player. Offense only, essentially, with team defense and to outlaw kickers, <laughs> just in general. Uh, <laughs> I would rather use punters. That's how much I hate kickers. I don't know how that would work, but hey, Marquette King, come on. He's, he's the guy rules. Um, Speaking of Marquette King, I, as many of you know, I'm I'm kind of the social media guy around these parts. So I'm in all kinds of little like Facebook groups and stuff, and I'm like in three different Raiders ones. And somebody the other day said, "Who's your favorite player on the Raiders?" You know, Derek Carr, Khalil Mack. And for some reason, in me, it always I, I when somebody says favorite player, I sometimes it's easy to have a favorite player for some sort of weird sentimental reason. But when you look at it right now with the Raiders, I I honestly think Market King is our best player. I think Derek Carr could be a awesome Hall of Fame quarterback, but we have the best punter in the league as far as I'm concerned. And I, I know Nick's a big fan of Johnny Hecker, but uh, is, is there anything wrong with me saying Marquette King is my favorite player? How can the punter be your favorite player? But he's the best at his position in the league. That's why I got to say that, right? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with uh, having a special teams player as your favorite player. Uh, you know, it, there was a time when I uh, laughed when I saw a guy at a sports bar wearing a Sean Sweesham Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. But then when when Sweesham got hurt, that was probably the biggest impact on the Steelers season that year. So, you know, as much as we like to laugh at punters and kickers, they do have a huge impact on wins and losses and the outcomes of games. So, no problem with that whatsoever. Yeah. I don't own a Marquette King jersey. Uh, although I have seen a, a guy with a Mitch, Mitch Berger jersey rolling around Sioux Falls every now and then. Uh, but uh, what do you think about my DFW 48 draft, Nick? Well, let's see. Uh, start off, you had a 1.35 pick. Uh, you went Tyler Boyd, the wide receiver for Cincinnati, at 1.46. Will Fuller, the Houston wide receiver, 2.33. Jared Goff, 3.16. Wendell Smallwood, Philadelphia's running back. 3.17. Uh, Mike Thomas, the, the Los Angeles wide receiver, uh, 3.32. Tyler Irvin, 4.21. Michael Pruitt, uh, and then uh, later on in the fourth round, Daniel Braverman, the wide receiver for Chicago, and Daniel Lasco, the wide, or running back for New Orleans. Now, going into the draft, your top wide receivers, uh, scoring-wise from last year, were Tavon Austin and Travis Benjamin. Uh, neither of those guys had 200 points. So I, I love the fact that you added four wide receivers. I'm not sure if any of these guys are going to turn out to be wide receiver ones, but if you get two wide receiver twos out of the four, then that's really a big addition to your squad. 
Uh, also, you had to get a top two quarterback. Uh, your only returning quarterbacks were Ben Roethlisberger and Fitzpatrick, who are not currently under contract. Uh, and you didn't reach for a quarterback. You you got, I believe it was a third copy of Jared Goff. So you, you let the market fall to you. So I like that. And I also really like uh, Smallwood and Irvin as third-round running back players, especially Smallwood. It seems like he's really impressing in Philadelphia and could earn himself a role as a rookie. Uh, overall, I like the strategy long-term, too. You know, you loaded up on the young wide receivers. You got a young quarterback. Then either next year or the year after, when your wide receivers begin to enter their primes, then you're probably going to go for a higher-ranked running backs when your team is actually ready to win now. But you, you didn't get any top-end talent. You know, not having a pick until 1.35, that's kind of affect that. And I don't see this draft making you a playoff team this year, so I think B-plus is the highest that I can go. Um, also, one last thought. I, I thought that you signed a blood oath to draft Austin Hooper in every single league. Uh, how I was wondering how disappointed were you when his last copy went at 3.04, and do you remember <laughs> did you try to trade up to try to gra- grab him? Um, no. I, I was sitting with like four tight ends anyway going into the draft. So I, I, and not that anybody was that, that impressive to me. I just, I, I just don't, well, and part of it is I don't think I'm there. I took this team over this off season as an orphan team. I didn't have a first round pick. So I sold my soul and did what, no, what I've been telling everybody not to do is trade a 2017 first for two first. And I, and I think I noticed some pretty good players. Am I, am I going to hate not having that first next year? Yes. And part of my strategy is when I did it, I thought I could maybe get a 2017 first during the draft. I thought people would get desperate. I was not able to come out as crafty league, but even still, if I had an early 2017 first round pick, yeah, that would be nice, and maybe I could flip that for even more collateral um, or draft capital, I should say. But you know, what good is a, this awesome running back going to do for me if my team is not ready to compete? You know, I, I just don't think I don't think I'm going to be there. So it's a little bit of my strategy there going into that. And you know, tight end, there's there was I didn't put huge stress on it during this draft because this is an offensive only draft and I looked at the tight ends that were available you know via free agency going into the draft and I actually liked a lot of the guys and I really truly in my heart of hearts believe that Michael Pruitt is going to be pretty pretty darn awesome I don't think he's going to be like a top five tight end but could he be at you know the tight end 10 next year I think he possibly could be because Kyle Rudolph is basically one foot out the door there in Minnesota as he's averages about nine games per season. So that I think they're done with him. Pruitt is an exceptional athlete, um, a little bit undersized, but uh, I, I just, I believe in him a lot. So that's, that's kind of why I didn't go after any of the rookie tight ends. So I think maybe my team is three years away and those rookie tight ends would have been nice to draft one of them, but I think Pruitt's going to be, going to be probably where both of those guys are at at that same point. So uh, let's look at Nick's DFW 48 draft. He did also didn't have a first round pick. So his first pick wasn't until 2.30 and he took Carson Wentz, who was, you know, that's, that's Nick's boy. We've, we've clearly established that if he's, he's going all, you traded up for him too. Is that correct or no? 
Um, I don't remember for uh, for sure, but I I know I went. You know, this was also an orphan team that I took over towards the end of last season. So, uh, you know, I was without a lot of the draft picks that I normally would have had. Mm-hmm. So, if you didn't trade for trade up for Wentz in this draft, you did every everywhere else. But anyway, um, so the seventy ninth <laughs> overall pick was his first <laughs> his first pick. Um, got Wentz. Uh, I I'm still not totally sold on it, but that's I know that's your guy, and and, and that's gonna a nice piece. And who who are the quarterbacks in this league? I forgot. Um, I don't recall off the top of my head. I'm in too many. Eli Manning and, and Philip Rivers. So he's got some older older quarterbacks. So he needed to get a a great a, a good younger guy to. To go to go along with those two, and the great thing about that is, you know, he's not going to need. Well, he probably won't even need to even consider playing him for the next two years. So he could be in a very good position when those guys either uh, retire or you know or whatnot. And then I I kind of like because this you didn't have a lot of picks. You didn't take flyers on you know these weird these these weird rookies. You went with with Muhammad Sanu and. Uh, Brandon LaFell with their next two picks. Those uh, those are guys that, that nobody's going to wow them. And I know we we are are definitely higher on both of those guys. But I think you know everybody keeps talking about how this Cincinnati offense is going to be so horrible, and the the only thing they have is AJ Green. Brandon LaFell is a pretty damn good player, and he he obviously was a lot better in the Brady offense than he was in the Carolina offense. But uh, I think if he stays healthy, he could be a, a very nice contributor. Muhammad Sanu was, you know, flanking Julio Jones, so you got you got to take you got to take him seriously. It's it's time to take him seriously. And I, if he if he falls flat in his face, I I won't be surprised. But I I just think there's there's a lot of potential there to like Muhammad Sanu. So I like both those picks. Uh, you went with a kicker, Roberto Aguayo, four point one zero. I I guess he needed one, so I can't dispute you there. Then you took a couple of defenses. It's Cincinnati and and Washington and and I think that's okay. Those are both fairly good defenses. I saw the, I kind of forgot you drafted Cincinnati and then I saw the Washington pick. I was like, oh, he's such a homer. But uh, I was like, oh, he's got you. That's all right. Uh, nothing wrong with that. And then he uh, capped it off with the second to last pick of the draft, four point two or six, taking Tajay Sharp. I think that's a nice nice piece. You know, I said a couple weeks ago when I took Sharp, I feel like he's a guy that. I can throw him on my taxi squad for one year, and, and, and I don't need him right right away, but he's he's a great player. I think that could grow in that offense. I, I really like liked him as a prospect, though he was, you know, lower level coming from UMass. I think he's, his translation is going to be fairly fairly decent. You know, Victor Cruz came from UMass too, so we, we, we know people can come out of that, that type of thing. It's, you know, not the best comparison for his playing style, but he's he's a nice – hard worker and I think with maybe a, a red shirt there here at the NFL level he could come out pretty good. So not not a lot of flash, but I think you made solid picks of guys that are gonna contribute this year and sharp probably next year. So I'm gonna give it a B minus. Um uh you got the quarterback of the future which is which is which is nice to have. Uh you know I I feel like quarterback it's interesting because I feel like quarterback is a little bit of a deep position, and we're going to have an article coming out by that by uh, one of our newest writers, Chris Tubbs, here very soon. But I also feel like it's been a position that's getting overvalued in, in Dynasty, especially because you need to have a good one, and you need to have 
a backup plan. And I think the, maybe we've, we're all just learning from the NFL. We've seen Pittsburgh, you know, trotting out Jarvis Landry. Or, or excuse me, Jarvis Landry would have been better. Um, Landry Jones and Michael Vick last year, and that really, really hurt their season there. So, um, yeah, I think it's a fairly decent draft. Um, any any other thoughts? Any other any reasonings behind some of those picks that you wanted to spread? Well, well, no, normally in a draft I wouldn't draft a kicker and defenses, but you know I had zero kickers and zero defenses on my roster, and I just didn't want to have to spend waiver dollars, you know, trying to grab you know chase kickers and defenses. I figured with the the Tampa Bay kicker, he's a second round pick. He's his roster spot being drafted that high as a kicker it is going to be safe for a few years you know, barring a complete meltdown. So hopefully that's a position I just won't even have to worry about for the next few years. And, yeah, that's uh, the reason I went that route instead of uh, going with flyers on, you know, unproven wide receivers late in the fourth round. You know, I went with a couple defenses. Yeah. Would you say, you know, potentially the next Sebastian Janikowski going to be there <laughs> 15 years? Maybe not. Maybe not that long. But uh, they obviously liked it. <laughs> um, it is time for Nick rants, and I think Nick's got an apology for us and somewhat of an interesting rant as well. What do you got for us, buddy? Well, yes, I, I do need to apologize because I, I, you know, going into you know the last couple of weeks, I thought I was a good ranter, but then I was outside of my work one night and heard this guy ranting at the top of his lungs about how uh, Hawaii is still under the rule of the Queen of England and the Queen's got satellites and the spies and she's watching all of us and she's messing. Well, he didn't say messing, but I'll just edit it as messing. She's messing with you. She's messing with me. She's messing with a certain actress that he mentioned who happens to be anorexic, by the way. All this was at the top of his lungs. and I just really felt ashamed because I was like, wow, this is the greatest rant I've ever heard. And I have a segment called Nick Rants, and I can't even hold a candle to this guy. I almost offered him a gun. <laughs> but a- anyway, so I already admitted that I'm a subpar rancher. And this one may be even more boring than most, but it was a sl- slow news <laughs> in the NFL. Uh, there was one situation that could be either a blip on the radar or the tip of an iceberg, and that's the situation with the quote-unquote retired 49ers tackle Anthony Davis, who, if I remember right, all but said he was just taking a year off when he retired last year. Uh, With players becoming more educated about the risks their mind and bodies are taking, I believe the situation will become more commonplace. And in the next uh, collective bargaining agreement negotiations, uh, it's going to have to be addressed, I I believe. Uh, When Davis retired, he had to pay the team uh, back the prorated money from his signing bonus for 2015. But if he comes back to the team, he may not get that money back. And, of course, if he remains retired, he will owe the 49ers his prorated 2016 money as well. And, of course, with all labor negotiations, I'm sure there will be snags. Like when a player takes a one-year hiatus, are they still required to submit drug tests? What about older players who unretired, like when Deion Sanders played with the Ravens? Today, would the league say, nope, you missed two years of drug tests, so you're ineligible to return? Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, if Davis had been on a cocaine-fueled bender the last few months with Johnny Manziel, could he re-enter the league without consequence? Uh, And if a player signs a four-year deal in 2015, then takes 2017 off, does the contract still expire after the 2018 season, or does it extend one more year to compensate for the one year the player took off? 
uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, this is not a super exciting rant. Uh, maybe I should have just gone off about how your elbow is more important than your cell phone, Darren McFadden. But I do believe this <laughs> is an issue that uh, I foresee becoming more frequently addressed. Um, or or what about the fact that Aaron Rodgers gave up dairy and he's a cheesehead. He's from the land of cheeseheads. <laughs> did you hear about that? That's a pretty good one. I did not. Is he lactose intolerant or just like a personal dietary choice? Um, personal dietary. Um, somebody else did it. So he wanted to he wanted to lose a few a few pounds and and gain muscle. I think is what he did. So he gave up gave up that fatty cheese. I personally, I feel like I might be coming a little bit dairy intolerant as I get older, and that saddens me greatly. <laughs> but anyway, um, very interesting point as always on, on some of your rants, and we'll see we'll see how those uh, collecting bargaining agreements. Uh, Treat, uh, treat that as such. Um, there, there may be, maybe there needs to be a form that says uh, that you sign that says yes, I'm retired. But there's a box that you can say I, you know, but I, I, I reserve the right to come back to, at this time if I so choose. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that uh, ends up working out in the end. But uh, that is all we have for you today. Like I said, next week. Still, still, college football is that master. So excited. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Charles Simkovich uh, of the Simkovich Cranial Institute. Really, really great stuff from him. Uh, obviously stuff that I don't know anything about, but uh, good good to be educated on the, on the, the movement and the, and, and the brain fluid and stuff like that. And very, very just open and honest guy. Great, great questions. And if you want, you can click on the link to his website through this there too. Uh, he's in Pittsburgh too, so maybe we'll have to have uh, maybe we'll have to send Mike Craffic to him to see if he can find out some more information. But that's uh, great stuff from Dr. Charles. So make sure you check that. Make sure you listen uh, to Phil Still next week. We appreciate you. Nick, any closing thoughts? Um, just that it was great for the the doctor to join us. We definitely appreciate him giving up his time, which you know it, he's a doctor, so his time is very valuable. <laughs> really, really great that he was able to uh, spend some time with us, educating us. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. And, and frankly, I I, sh- I can tell you this: they actually sought me out as opposed to me trying to find guests. So I, I appreciate his people reaching out to us as, as an avenue of. Uh, uh, education for their 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 site and their their uh, their institute. So thank you very much. And Nick, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Dynasty Bowl Podcast with Nikki, Gil, 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 Gil,